are just outside of Irpin, the city that is neighboring Kyiv and where a huge Russian attack has been going on for the past several days. Floods of people have been crossing over the river and you can hear outgoing artillery fire from the Ukrainian side. Our colleagues Siobhan O'Grady and Whitney Shefty are in the Ukrainian city of Erpen, where the situation is getting increasingly more dangerous. The mayor said that four people, including two small children, were shot dead in front of his own eyes as they tried to escape. We just were down at the bridge that is completely broken. People are crossing underneath and old people being carried in pieces of sheets people being pushed in wheelbarrows. I mean, any way that they can get across. Kids, dogs, cats, old and young, are trying to flee this area. So can can you just tell me, are you from Irpin? Yes. Okay. And how old are you? 14. 14, okay. What's been happening the last few days in Irpin? Just a lot of explosions, shootings. That's Varavara Fetasova. She's fleeing with her family. Have you seen Russian soldiers? Yeah. They entered our house. They asked if we had weapons. They asked if we were, um, like, <laughs> mean or something, if we were going to shoot. She says Russian soldiers told them to stay at home. Anne took the battery from her family's car. But their gas, water, electricity had all been shut off. And why did you decide today to leave? It's because of the electricity or because you're afraid of being... Because of the electricity, mostly. Because we wouldn't stay there for long. We would freeze. And any day could be could get worse. So we decided to leave immediately because it wasn't, it wasn't safe in the first place. So my name is Andrew. I'm 45 years old and I'm the owner of the Stockholm Studios. Even three days ago, we had everything. Electricity, gas supplies, everything uh, of that. He told our colleagues Siobhan and Whitney that his business was badly damaged by the shelling, and he was trapped inside of his own building. Then, Russian forces took over. They stole everything they saw, all the electronics. They searched all the phones, and they uh, found my two passports, both Ukrainian passports. And uh, when they saw American visa... When they saw a Canadian visa in my passport, uh, they thought that I'm American spy. They were shouting and uh, telling to me, where are your dollars? Where are your dollars? Okay, I was sitting on the stool in the kitchen. They closed the door and they made five shots through the door to the kitchen to the stool where I sat. They shot at him five times through the door. And only one of those uh, five shots wounded me in the, into the leg. Uh, and the guy uh, who, who was trying to kill me told, OK, so uh, maybe this is your lucky day. As the invasion of Ukraine goes on, so many of us around the world are hearing stories like these and asking, where is this headed? What does Russia want? Or maybe a better question. What does Vladimir Putin want? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 8th. 
And today, we try to answer the question of why Putin is doing this with help from our colleague, Carlos Lozada. If you look at a lot of news stories and magazine cover pieces and stuff, it's always this very dramatic, you know, what does Putin want? What is Putin thinking? You know, like like you can get into his mind. I didn't imagine I'd be able to do that. But I did find some kind of recurring themes and recurring obsessions in his writings and in his interviews. Carlos is the nonfiction book critic at The Post. After Russia invaded Ukraine, Carlos was looking for a way to do what so many of us are trying to do right now, understand Putin's motivations. I'm not a foreign correspondent. I'm not a natural security expert. So I realized that, you know, Vladimir Putin sort of sees himself as as something of a historian and has written lots of essays and even published a book uh, some 20 plus years ago. So I thought, okay, that's my way into this story. That's how I can I can help readers make sense of this moment. So I went and read all that stuff. And he learned a lot. One of the recurring obsessions, as Carlos put it, was a real fixation on the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, which Putin sees as a tragedy. It keeps coming up, whatever the subject that he's talking about. And really, the end of the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War is the most frequent recurring obsession of Putin throughout his writings. Yeah, can we unpack that a little bit more? Like, that obsession, how did that manifest? What what was it that captivated him for so many years? One thing that's interesting about Putin and the end of the Cold War is that he wasn't in Russia for it. He was a KGB officer in Dresden in East Germany. And so he he missed perestroika and Gorbachev. I mean, he missed the kind of environment and atmosphere that was present at the at the time. And so for him, it was this, this incredibly kind of fearful event. One moment that, that comes up in his writing is after the Berlin Wall comes down, you know, he's kind of frantically burning documents at the KGB offices, which were in the same building as the East German Stasi, the, the secret police. There's a crowd approaching the building. And so he's calling for military backup and it doesn't come. You know, he's on the phone and he's told that uh, we can't do anything without orders from Moscow. And Moscow is silent. And that moment just terrified him. I sort of see a lot of what's happened since as his feeling that Moscow must never be silent again. He felt that in that moment, the country had disappeared. And so you see that concern of national decline, of the life and death of a nation coming up again and again. He talks a lot about something he calls the paralysis of power. He says that really the Soviet Union lost the Cold War not because of ideology or economics, but really Basically, the Soviets blinked. They lost their nerve and the Americans took advantage. And he's been trying to kind of recover that power for Russia and for himself ever since. Did you also learn about what his vision is for the future and why he might be doing some of the things he's doing now based on what he thinks Russia will be or should be in the future? He's pretty obsessed with restoring the power of Russia. And for him, that means the power of the state overwhelmingly, which in turn means the power of Vladimir Putin. And he talks about it in in a very sort of almost mystical sense, like that the Russian people, you know, it's, it's embedded in their DNA. 
in their history to have a strong Russian state. And just how American politicians always say, the American people want whatever the politician wants. You know, Putin says that really it's the Russian people who want the restoration of a strong state. He doesn't want the restoration of, you know, say, you know, communist ideology, which he's very disdainful of, but really it's almost power as its own end. And I think that helps to explain what he's doing now with Ukraine. He sees the, the restoration of a kind of sphere of influence and of the greater Russia as part of his mandate. But it's a lot of kind of anger and personal disdain for the superpower that, you know, unfortunately, and just out of luck, ended up winning the Cold War, the United States. Throughout his writings, you see just a ton of almost kind of petty, personal aversion to Washington. It seems like lately there's been this sense of surprise and shock at what has transpired and and even how Putin himself has communicated his intentions. But when you were reading all of this, did you have this sense of, well, he's been saying this all along, like almost hiding in plain sight? There was a speech he gave in 2007 that in hindsight ended up being, I think, very revealing. It was in in Munich at at a security conference. And he even started off saying, like, I'm going to speak very impolitely now. And then he did. He started calling out the United States and essentially the whole international system that had developed after the end of the Cold War. You know, he, he says, look, having a, a unipolar world, a world with one superpower, is unacceptable and is impossible. I think And look at the mess that superpower is, is making of the world. This was when the U.S. was very much mired in in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And so he says, look, and we're Russia, and we don't have to accept that. The rest of you want to accept it. We don't have to accept it. We have a thousand-year history of of conducting our own own independent foreign policy, and and that's what we're going to do. The expansion of NATO was a recurring theme for him, you know, throughout lots of these writings. And so in the world that we're in now with the invasion of Ukraine, you see two motivating forces for Putin. One is the notion he repeats again and again about how, you know, Ukraine and Russia are are one and a common people and, you know, the language and the history and the faith. But also it's this effort to basically strike back and reorder the balance that he felt went out of whack at the end of the Cold War. And even if you reread the two big speeches he gave on the eve of war, where he's justifying the action against Ukraine, he ends up talking a ton of the time about the United States and about NATO. It's as much of a focus or more as the quote-unquote sort of reunification he's trying to achieve with Ukraine. After the break, the weird things Carlos found, like Putin's bragging about being a bad boy. We'll be right back.
Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. In reading what he's written or in speeches he's given, was there anything that struck you about the way he communicated, like the prose itself? Was there anything that stood out to you that that you think is worth highlighting or, you know, tells us something about him and his motivations? He brags a lot about weird things. Like he talks about the great grades he got in high school, says he was a bad boy. You know, he calls himself a hooligan, which is really weird. He also admits that he's kind of a a rotten communicator, that it's hard to understand him. The book called First Person that he published in, in 2000, which is really a series of interviews with him and with members of his family and other close associates, there's a few examples in that. You know, one of his KGB instructors says, look, you know, he just, he was really uncommunicative. You know, it was hard to understand what he meant. His wife is now former wife, says that when he was proposing marriage to her, she was so confused that she thought he was breaking up with her. And so when people say that he's difficult to read sometimes, you know, it's not super surprising. He also tells stories about, um, and that you think are stories that he kind of wants to be repeated in some ways that, that say something about him. He likes to present himself as a risk taker. He even says when he's talking about the crackdown that he was part of against Chechen separatists in the late 90s, that, look, if you become jittery, they will think they are stronger. The only thing that works in these circumstances is to go on the offensive. You must hit first and hit so hard that your opponent will not rise to his feet. So he certainly wants to present himself as this kind of undeterrable risk taker. Whether he is or not is something that we're we're in the process of finding out. What do you think the purpose of these works were, like, especially for Putin and for the Kremlin? Of course, you have to take all of it with some caution, because as with all politicians, you know, it's what you're getting in cases like these is often a mix of truth and fiction and propaganda, even more so when you're dealing with a longtime KGB officer. And so I, I did find a few things that were interesting to me, though. One is Post Reports listeners probably remember Fiona Hill, who was one of the officials who testified in the first Trump impeachment trial a Russia expert who worked in the Trump White House, she wrote a really good book about Putin, almost like a book-length psychological profile of him. And she said that he thinks of himself as a history man. He uses history to suit his purposes and to try to claim greater legitimacy for Russia, for himself, or for whatever he's doing. And a lot of these writings and interviews and speeches do that. They delve deeply into, you know, very specific historical interpretations that suit his purposes. And he's often accusing others of twisting history uh, when he's doing the same himself. Was there anything in your readings that surprised you? I mean, a lot of politicians are both incredibly ambitious and incredibly thin-skinned at the same time. I always think of excessive bragging as a sign of insecurity. And if that's the case, then he's quite insecure. He's constantly talking about himself in a way that's a little bit Trumpy when you think about it, even in his threats as well. You know, he said, if 
if any country gets involved in what he's doing in Ukraine, you know, there'll be consequences like have never been seen in history, you know, which is very much a, a kind of Trump phrase, you know, the, the likes of which you've never seen before. And I was surprised to hear those echoes. What questions were you left with after reading all of this? I was wondering where it ends, where I don't, I don't mean the war as much, although perhaps that fits as well. But I mean, where the extent of his ambition and his desire for restoration of Russian power? Is it just getting back to the kind of Cold War balance of a bipolar dual superpower world, which would be ambitious enough, perhaps? Or is it something more than that? It's not clear to me, once you set down along the path that he's taking, what would be enough? And that, to me, was both a question, but also also really concerning when you think about the prospect of a wider conflict in Ukraine and beyond. Thanks for joining me, Carlos. Thanks for having me, Lahe. Carlos Lozada is the nonfiction book critic for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alexis Diao and Jordan Marie Smith. It was mixed by Sam Baer and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Elahe Izadi. Martine Powers will be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.